Welcome to Unfazed, an unabashed podcast designed to help you grapple with the reality of racism, sexism, ableism, and many other hard-to-discuss issues affecting endurance sports, triathlon, and our lives. This is our inaugural episode where we talk to a live audience about staying upright in the face of resistance to change and how jumping in at the deep end may not be the best approach to learning. We also discuss allyship in relation to self-interest. So if you want to learn about all this and more, join us after the break for our very first episode of Unfazed. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. How long have we been planning for this, really, Lisa? I mean, it's been, what, a few months now, I would say? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is, a, this is a big deal after a lot of thought and rethinking and circling the airport quite a few times. And, gosh, how, how long did we even talk about the name for the podcast, though? I mean, it, it <laughs> took a minute. It took a minute. We had uh, dictionaries out, a thesaurus out. We had all kinds of things out trying to figure out what we would even name this concept. We did. That was quite the epic discussion, figuring out a name. (laughs) But when we decided on Unfazed, um, it just landed for all of us on the call that that was the right thing to do. So um, tonight's episode of Unfazed is trying to stay upright. That's going to be the subject that we're talking about. Um, So let's talk a little bit more initially, Shauna, about, so why do you think we need this podcast? Like, so all those months of conversation and circling the airport, like, yes, why are we doing this? Absolutely. Well, and I see people chiming in on the chat. I see my uh, triathlon coach that's on the chat right now, and she can tell you all about how I've been uh, trying to stay upright in these aero bars on my new tri bike. So um, yeah, she can spill the beans on all of my business over there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the podcast, the, the title in this particular topic was so important because I saw a lot of people kind of flailing around these topics around inclusion and equity and I don't even know who I should talk to and I want to talk to people who are oppressed or disenfranchised or what have you but I really didn't want to ask them because I didn't think it was Mm -hmm. their um, onus or burden to educate me on things that I kind of should have already known and so this really provided us an opportunity to talk out loud about what we're learning, what we have learned as educators. Um, Just because we are both sitting here with PhDs, that doesn't mean that we know everything at all. We're learning on a daily basis. And if you could see a screenshot of all the texts that Lisa and I had back and forth on a daily basis, you would know how much we're learning on a a regular. Um, And so, you know, it's our hope that Lisa and I can kind of bring all of those text messages and emails and conversations that were going on in the back end, even before we had the concept of this podcast. Hopefully we could kind of pull the curtain back so people could kind of begin to learn how to process the same ways we do. We're not expecting y'all to come out with terminal degrees, obviously, but we want people to feel okay with thinking through this because they're not going to be any easy answers around this. And so um, one of the reasons why we wanted to look at Unfazed particularly, but then also um, this topic of staying upright is we see people kind of going to the advanced levels of talking about diversity and inclusion kind of too soon, too quickly. So it's kind of, you know, like jumping in the deep end without really knowing how to swim. 
Um, and, and for me, I think that's a concern. I always talk about these topics and how, you know, I wouldn't hand my first grader a book on quantum physics, you know, so he can get there, but um, it shouldn't be immediately. And so I, I really hope that people will take this progressive effort to get from A to Z, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the piece that we're trying to help folks understand is that there's definitely a phased approach to this, right? So Shauna and I didn't start, you know, in our teenage years in quantum physics, like she suggested, right? This has been a journey for both of us. It's been a different journey based on our identities. Um, but we have definitely grown over time and our approach has been phased. And the other piece to that, right, the play on words is that we have to be unfazed with a Z, right? Unfazed in our pursuit of uh, understanding diversity and inclusion, understanding our own, our own role in sustaining systems of oppression um, systems that harm people. And so there's some bravery, um, some kind of standing, trying to stay upright as the wind is blowing at you hard um, that you have to keep forging forward. And actually, Shona, when we were talking the other day, you were um, made the connection when you were in Arrow, right? So you were talking about how learning to cycle in Arrow um, is a really positive thing because you can go faster, right? You have less wind resistance, but it's super scary when you first do it because your whole body is off balance when you're leaning forward. So it doesn't feel comfortable. Um, and it's really yeah. easy to just sit upright um, because that feels safe and comfortable, but persisting with that arrow position over time, it becomes more comfortable. And I just thought that was such a great way to think about this kind of phased approach and this, um, standing up to face the headwinds in an unfazed way. Well, and it's, <laughs> I explained it to another friend of mine who's new to cycling. I said, it feels like shooting yourself out of a cannon. You know, you, you know, you're going in a certain direction. You know, you bought this particular piece of equipment because it's supposed to help you get there more quickly, more comfortably, hopefully safe if you know how to handle it. But yet it still initially feels like that. And so I wouldn't suggest to someone like me who started cycling after, you know, 25, almost 30 years of not cycling to just jump right into arrow. I mean, absolutely not necessarily. Um, and so for someone like me who needed to kind of ease into things, I think that's what was important. And so, um, you know, I'm just wondering why we think it's okay to jump from zero to a hundred when it comes to these conversations, because it's not. Most of the folks that I talk to are people who don't even have the language to talk about what they've either experienced or witnessed by other people. And so, you know, learning some of the language, you know, I, I would not ask my boys to go to a spelling bee right now if they didn't know their alphabet. So, you know, why do we ask people to go to this place where we're just too far into diversity and inclusion and they don't have the tools to manage? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about my own journey, right? Like as a white person, as a white woman, um, growing up in the United Kingdom, um, a, a culture now that I feel fairly disconnected from, um, but recognize that there's probably parallel things happening over there. Um, but when I first came to the United States back in 2003, that was the first time I'd ever heard of white, white privilege. Um, so, you know, that's not that long ago. Really? And, I didn't yes. know that. Oh yes. my gosh. Um, it didn't feel like it made sense to me. Like, oh, that makes sense. But it wasn't the language around it was all new. So when I kind of, when I came to the US and I was doing my master's program, I was steeped in conversations about privilege, oppression, marginalization, you know, systemic, um, uh, uh, systemic 
oppression and violence, right? This is all stuff that like was all brand new to me. And I think part of the desire having been there to go from that zero to a hundred is like, I wanted to get it. I wanted to get it immediately because I needed to be like, I wanted to be a good ally. I wanted to be a good white person, right? I didn't want to be that white person who made all the mistakes. <laughs> so I, I think that's, at least I can't speak for all white people. I can speak for myself. I think that might be a feeling that um, folks who have privileged identities with the zero to a hundred, perhaps mm -hmm. like the, the fear, it, like the fear around making an error can mm. lead us to jump in the deep end too soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that, that's something, and I know we didn't really, we, we've been thinking about this, this podcast much longer than um, the last few days, obviously. And so with the events surrounding um, Chadwick Boseman and, you know, the loss of life there and how people were really hurt, you know, deeply hurt by his loss. You know, I, I had a great conversation with my dad because my dad heard about it on the news and he's like, oh, that's the guy that played Black Panther. He played James Bond. Brown and played, you know, all these other, um, both real and uh, fictional characters. And, you know, he said to me, well, I've never watched Black Panther, but I'm going to watch it on Sunday night when it's airing on national TV. And I'm going to try to get into it. Mind you, he's never read the comics. He's never followed Marvel. He's never really been into the superhero type of thing. And so to sit there and watch two and a half hours of trying to understand how prolific Chadwick Boseman was from nothing is a little bit challenging. And so, you know, I, I kind of feel like we treat these conversations around inclusion and equity and all of that, we treat it the very same way that we try to mm -hmm. jump in full force. And we just really, we don't have the language, we don't have the context, um, we don't understand why. Um, and so I, I kind of compare my dad's experience with Black Panther of, you know, I sat there for an hour and a half and just still didn't get it. Well, of course he wouldn't get it. Uh, he didn't have the background necessarily. He didn't have some of the uh, context and some of the history around comics and so forth. He wouldn't get it. Same thing happens with oppression and privilege and power. And if you've lived in an environment, probably as a white person who has never had to have these conversations or even the unspoken understandings of this language, then you wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess my concern becomes when when you don't know, but then there's also resistance to knowing. And what mm -hmm. does that say about, you know, the individual of, well, wait a minute, you've, you know, I know people who have PhDs right now who spent their whole lives learning things. And so to say that you don't want to learn about something that harms entire social groups and structures and countries. And to me, that, that is serious resistance, serious mm -hmm. resistance. So I, um, I think that's something that we need to consider, you know, where is the resistance coming in, even to getting into the shallow end? We're not even going to the deep end. Like, where's the resistance to even put one foot in the waters of having these conversations? It's important to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to do, we're going to try really hard to make these connections um, with triathlon and endurance sports, although I don't actually think it's that challenging. But um, the Marvel Universe and <laughs> Black Panther, I'm sure you didn't think we would go yeah. there. Um, right, right. But I, I'm just thinking about this because I have a friend who does, um, well, like you, Shona, she's a swim coach and she does a lot of adult learn to swim. So she works with a lot of people who um, have never swum before and they're adults seeking to learn, but they actually have a fear of water. And so she mm -hmm, talks about mm -hmm. that first lesson sometimes mm -hmm. might not even involve the client getting in the pool. 
right? Like it might even just be, or it might be like them putting their hand in and kind of getting used to the feeling and them talking through stuff. And um, it's, it's a very, very phased approach to learning how <laughs> yeah. to swim, you know, and it might take two to three lessons before they can even put their face in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. A good friend of mine, um, she's military as well, army, U.S. Army. And what was so fascinating about the first few times she started swimming was that exact point, Lisa, where, you know, she used to take a shower with her back facing the shower head because she did not want any water splashing into her face. So the idea of putting her face into water in, in a pool or especially not in open water, that just wasn't a concept. And so when I went to get my certification as a U.S. master's coach. What I found so interesting to me was that the first, one of the first steps around teaching an adult learner how to swim was the first thing was putting, your, putting their face in the water and lo- learning how to blow bubbles. And I'm thinking to myself, I know people that need like step zero, like they haven't gotten into the water yet. They might need to sit on the steps for the first lesson just to put their feet in to you know get acclimated to the water much less putting their face in or um even teaching backstroke for example oh just lay back and float on your back who me no i don't trust i don't trust the water i don't trust the water to hold me up i don't understand balance and my body um movement or even how to control my body and so no just falling back would not be a simple thing especially to an adult that has already overthought it (laughs) has already probably spent what how many years um being ingrained with a fear of water um, I don't know about anybody else, but I had 30 years of being told, don't go near water that's deep. Don't go near water where you can't see the bottom. Don't go near, et cetera, et cetera. So spending 30 plus years being told that, and now you're expected to reverse that in the first lesson. Nah, that's not going to happen mm-hmm. easily. Right. Yeah. And my, my friend also talked about like <clears throat> spending a whole lesson teaching someone to put their feet down. Right. Like, so they don't mm-hmm. like for people who swim, putting your feet down in the pool and like using your hands to get yourself upright into a vertical position seems like second nature. If you don't Mm -hmm. know how to do that, that's how a lot of people can drown or really struggle in shallow waters because they don't actually know how to put their feet down on the ground. Right. So Mm -hmm. they don't have that um, hard surface underneath them. And I just think this is so um, relevant and connected to how we try to teach people or how we try to understand diversity and inclusion and, you know, big things like white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like that's, that's a tidal wave of information that may not be um, resisted because of kind of an innate resistance to it, but maybe resisted because it just feels overwhelming and they, folks don't know how to put their feet on the ground with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it feels overwhelming and it, it may be at least twofold where it feels overwhelming because there's so much to learn, but also, you know, it's not just a subject. It's, it is very personal and professionalized at the same time. So if I have a chemistry professor, that professor can just talk about chemistry. You know, if I have, you know, anyone that has a profession can just talk about their profession and not necessarily personalize it. But when we talk about race, when we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about anti-racism, et cetera, I, I still believe, I'm not a psychologist, but I would love to talk to one to figure out how the brain actually functions in that way Mm -hmm. because I feel like some people hear the topic of race, 
of white supremacy, of privilege, of power. And immediately, as soon as they hear some of those words, some of that language, their brain immediately takes in, oh my God, somebody either called me a racist or they are uh, perceiving characteristics about me that could be racist. And I don't want to put myself mm -hmm. out there to be critiqued that way. So let's just not talk about it at all. Let's mm -hmm. just not talk about it at all. And so, you know, that's when we get into avoidance. That's when we get into anger. That's when we get into silence. That long laundry list that Robin D'Angelo talks about in White Fragility that everybody and their mother has read that really might not have, maybe they shouldn't have read it yet because they weren't ready for it. And they're all kind of offended. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and they're not even really clear on what they're offended about other than these are conversations I've never had before and I'm uncomfortable and I need to express to someone that I'm uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Right. And I think what we're suggesting is not that you slow roll your um, engagement or education in this work, right? Like it's necessary and it's required. Um, but that that phased approach with an unfazed uh, demeanor um, is mm. going to be really important for you to be able to engage fully and kind of understand the nuance and the and dig beneath the surface and move beyond what Shauna just articulated that oh, you said the word race, therefore I can't touch that with a 10-foot pole because you might think that I'm racist, right? So talking about race doesn't make you racist and talking about, as talking about gender doesn't make you sexist, right? Like if we can't mm -hmm. have those conversations, how are we going to uncover some of this insidious and pernicious stuff that's happening around us that we would otherwise not see? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and you know, I think you know, going back to our swimming analogy and our water analogy, you know, I think the biggest barrier to even having these conversations is that very few white folks, in my opinion, want to talk about it as a system. They want to talk mm -hmm. about it as an individual. And that's what's so very frustrating about it all is that we, we've talked about this before. If I jump into the South River, like I do almost every Sunday, if I jump into the South River and I'm not swimming, I'm not doing anything, I'm just floating along. If I get out of that same river, I'm still wet. So if I jump into a racist society, a sexist society, an ist, ist, ist society, I still come out with either the remnants or the benefits or the oppression of that system. So I'm still connected to it. And so for our, you know, especially when it comes to white triathletes, but just white folks in general that may be very kind, very well, we've talked about niceness, um, but, you know, when we have those folks that are not interested in doing the hard work of talking about the tough stuff, they think, well, I'm being nice to people. I'm being respectful to folks. I'm not being mean to anybody. I'm, you know, going out of my way to include folks, and they still don't feel as if there is a racist system around. That's sadly mistaken. You are. You are wet. If you jump into the system and jump out, you're still wet. And so, you know, I, I think that's where, you know, there's some work to be done around. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the system, the, the river we're all swimming in here. We're all in it. Whether we want to be or not, there's a bunch of folks historically that did some really ridiculous stuff. And because of that, we're now downstream, downriver, still trying mm -hmm. to deal with the foolishness and sort it out. And so, you know, I, I think the the complicity is acting like the system doesn't exist and right. focusing on the personal when it, it's, I think we can tackle things head on with, you know, with that headwind type of mm -hmm. feel, you know, let's talk about the system. I'm not interested in calling out racist. I can do that all day, every day. I can sniff you out a mile away. I'm not interested in that anymore. I'm interested in the actual system that can change and then make racist or folks with racist tendencies 
more and more uncomfortable. So then they either choose to change their ways, they choose to dis- they choose to do something, but they know that their behavior won't be tolerated, especially when we have folks that are willing to speak out, folks that are willing to demonstrate ally characteristics. It just flat out won't be tolerated. So mm-hmm. I just think we need to talk about system. It, it's, it's harder to talk about system, but I think we should go there. Yeah. And it's, it's not so much like if I've been affected by the system, it's how I've been affected by the system. Right. Like, you know, you're, you're saying about, you know, you're jumping into the river and you're getting out and you're still wet. Like we're, yeah, we're all in the river, like being born into the United States or North America or even, you know, the world. Right. Right. Like, right. Depending on the context, like we're in that river, like, and you can't just, get out of the mm-hmm. river without some kind of introspection or conscious thought about how you have perpetuated that flow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. that's a, that's such an important point. And I do agree. That's where people struggle because we want to think about racism and sexism and ableism and homophobia as a problem of the individual, right? There's something mm. wrong with that person. Yeah. Um, and they just need to change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we miss, we miss the boat there. I think we need to take a big step back and look at policy, which is what Ibram X. Kendi talks about. We need to look at those systems that wrap around us. And even if I am not doing anything, right? Like I am not actively trying to benefit from the system. Like I am benefiting from the system as a white person, right? Mm-hmm. Like every single day, right? The way the police respond to me, the way, retail outlets, people in the retail stores respond to me the way um, other other professional folks will respond to me vis-a-vis a person of color, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about women uh, on this call will, th- will have some understanding around bike shops, right? We've talked a lot about how intimidating yes. bike shops can be as women, right? They're often male-dominated. Men in bike shops, not all, but many, um, assume that women don't know anything about cycling, right? They're patronizing, sometimes rude, or you just get ignored, um, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, that's, the sy- that's a system, right? That you're interfacing with. It's not that that individual person is an asshole, right? right. I mean, right. they might be, but they're right. like, they are um, bringing forth kind of this system of cycling that has historically marginalized women. And that's something that we need to think about with race. And I just don't think we do as good a job of it as white people thinking about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, and even when you're, you're bringing up a memory of mine where, you know, when, if you walk into a bike shop with, you know, probably an extremely expensive bike, the, the assumption for me at least once um, was that the bike didn't belong to me. It belonged to a spouse or it belonged to some other male in my life, but it didn't belong to me exactly. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's up with that? And so how are we, how are we conditioned, even when we're not aware that we're conditioned to think in certain mm-hmm. ways, how are we conditioned? Um, how have we been historically conditioned and we don't even realize we are? Um, and what does that mean for how we understand things? Um, this was what, a couple of weeks ago, Lisa, you probably saw my post on um, running in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and white people not making space for people yes. of color. I do not want to step off into the grass. You shouldn't have to step off into the grass either, but let's not act as if we don't see each other. And white folks not understanding there's an entire history around that when there was a time where black folks were expected to step off into the grass. And, and that's where my concern lies is that no one's trying to say, oh, you're a big meanie because you didn't step off the sidewalk when I was in my run. But what I am saying is that 
you're ill-informed because you don't even understand that there is a history behind that. You just think you're out walking your dogs or you're doing what have you. And you don't even realize that centuries have conditioned you to not move when you see another person of color mm-hmm. or not move when you see really anyone. But I know based, <laughs> based on my very loose experiment of doing this in several different neighborhoods, it happens every time, every mm-hmm. time. And the only time where I've seen a change in behavior has been young people. And I, I wonder if the way young people are being conditioned now um, has given them a phased approach that we of certain generations maybe didn't have. Right, right. I don't know. You know, and that was a learning for me. Like it made total sense what you said, but my, you know, I, I have a decent grasp around U.S. history, but not, well, I was going to say not being raised here and brought up and taught mm-hmm. in U.S. schools. And then I was thinking, well, we all know that U.S. schools teach a whitewashed history, right? Um, right. That's one right. of the things. So we actually graduate from school with a pretty warped um, understanding Mm-hmm. about history. And that's certainly true in the British context. And I'm just coming around to that now, but your post was um, really important um, because I think that like myself, folks probably haven't given it that depth of thought and that's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything yeah. that we experience now is contextualized and located in this larger history of oppression in the, in the United States context. Mm, And -hmm. and if we just, as white people say, that was then, this is now, we're refusing to engage with the remnants, the hangover, like the ripples, whatever you want to call it, of how that affects people's lives now. Like Mm -hmm. we can talk about how race is a social construct and race was created to benefit white people um, and to create racial hierarchies, right? So sure, Mm -hmm. race is a social construct. It's not real. But folks of color, like, live with the consequences of that social construct every day, right? So it's mm-hmm. pretty flippant for white people to just say, let's throw out the category of race, right? When mm-hmm. you're the group that benefits from it. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, of course. The, the hero tells the, the story. And, you know, that's where I think, you know, we have that learning and that growth to do. And I think, you know, it's kind of two ends of this spectrum though, because we have the folks that are kind of disinterested or, or they're saying, let's not talk about it. Let's skip over history and just get to the now, um, which we can't really get to the now unless we do have more context. Um, But then we have the folks that still, once again, are not having these phased conversations Mm -hmm. and they're going to the other extreme of let me perform as if I get it. Let me throw out the right words because Look, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody has said anti-racism since June 1st when George Floyd passed, because I guarantee you on what, May 30th, 31st, they didn't know that word. Mm -hmm. They didn't even, much less know the definition. They might have never heard that word until George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, et cetera. And so that also begs the question of who's playing games with us here? You know, who's throwing out the language, but they really don't have even a, a shallow concept of these terms. So, you know, I, I oftentimes, especially when I go into consulting work, you do the pre-consult to kind of see what the challenges are in the organization, et cetera. And when the very first thing people ask me for is we need bias training and microaggressions training, that's code language for you don't have the language to even describe what the hell mm. is going on here. You, you, mm-hmm. have, you do not have the language for it. And so now I have to listen more deeply 
to hear what are some of the symptoms so that then I can write a prescription, if you will, for what's needed. And so, and I think that happens is that let's perform as if we're doing the right thing. Let's have a bunch of bias training. Let's have a bunch of microaggressions trainings and let's see what happens after uh, one hour, which most of the time they try to force your hand into one hour, mm-hmm. which we know, you know, Shauna has a magic wand that could work, you know, right. miracles in one hour for your entire organization. And then a year later, they wonder why the organization hasn't moved or changed or progressed in any way. That's performative. And so mm-hmm. how do we get to somewhere in between amongst the faces where we're not shallow, but we're also not performing either because all of it is shallow, frankly. Um, so th- to me, that's a big challenge too, is let's not act like we know what we're talking about. Let's have, and I don't know if that goes into the cultural humility area, Lisa, where it's like, let's be humble enough to know that we don't know a bunch of stuff and we need to ask someone to point us in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is this resistance among white people, especially of uh, to say out loud, I don't know what I don't know. Right. Mm. And I think that's a product of white supremacy, Um, white supremacy being a system, right. That elevates whiteness at the expense of people of color and, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and whiteness is neutral. Whiteness is objective um, and whiteness is right. Right. So this, I think about this a lot actually, because um, I love information. Like I feel like I'm just a sponge for information. Like I actually, I want to have a library in my house. I do not yet have one, but I really want one. Right. Cause I just love to collect information and I love to share that with people mm-hmm. but I, I think about that and I wonder how much of that is actually informed by whiteness or white supremacy it's mediated by my woman identity right because women are told to be quiet women are not supposed yeah. to be smart right so there it's not it's nuanced mm-hmm. but I do think about you know what does it mean for us white people for me a white person to say you know I don't know that right mm-hmm. like I think that's really, that's really hard. And if you only think, if you only put it on the individual as well, that person just likes to know everything, right? They're a know-it-all, right? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Versus mm-hmm. taking a step back and thinking there's this kind of like en masse, like mm-hmm. I can't possibly admit that I don't know something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I can't possibly admit that I don't know something. And I also don't want to admit that there are professionals that do this for a living that have studied the history around it, understand how nuanced the concepts are. And in fact, are living the phases of it as they're professionalizing the phases of it. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll give you a great example of this. um, And I'm going to be very generic. um, But um, at this point, we're doing a really great job um, in my day job of rolling out lots of dialogues and conversations about race. And we're doing it in a caucus format where we do have folks that are organized by race, whether it's all white folks, all black folks, all non-black people of color, whatever that might look like, however that parses out. And you would not be shocked. You, Lisa, would not be shocked. Now, other folks would be shocked, but you would not be shocked with the number of irate, pissed off, mad as hell uh, emails that we have gotten from fill in the blank, white males primarily. Um, I did get one from a white female, Um, but white males who took it upon themselves to not only say that they were concerned about the language that we use to invite people into dialogue, They were also concerned about uh, parsing people out into racial caucuses because they felt that we should all come together and have these conversations. And then furthermore went to say that, well, I'm going to tell you how this should be done. (laughs) 
And I'm thinking to myself, oh, that is so interesting that you are telling a two black females and one multiracial male how to run racial dialogues after our lived experience and then also having one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine professional degrees focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But you know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You have now proven why we need these conversations just by posing the questions. You have proven why we need to have this conversation. And so, you know, sent me this long master's thesis on why we should not um, have these dialogues in this fashion. And I, I wish I had the, the exact language that I sent back, but basically I kept it very brief and said, I think we should be very careful as predominantly white institutions and as white people to tell people if, when, or how people of color should have conversations about their experiences. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Are you the right person to dictate how people of color have conversations about their oppression? And if you think that you're the right person to tell them how to do it, you are complicit. You part of the problem. You, you have mm -hmm. now, you know, what, what do people say? The, um, your slip is showing here. You know, you are really showing who you are and the flaws in your thinking by even posing that response. And so, you know, I think that's kind of where we are is I, I just wish we could take off the personal offense from even posing the conversation. This person even talked about um, how the conversation was politicized and I feel like this is gonna be like an educational program. No, this is just a facilitated dialogue for people to come in and talk about their experiences. That's it, no one's trying to educate you. No one's trying to uh, probably brainwash is probably a good word there. Um, none of that's happening. We're just coming together for conversation as community to talk about these issues. Um, and so I, I found it so interesting how much heat was on that conversation. And then when I stepped back from it, I said, you know what, this is probably a person that should not be in the conversations either, even if it was an all white conversation, because mm -hmm. the people that show up that are bringing in the humility to learn may get overshadowed, overtalked, overspoken, overpowered because someone else is coming in pissed off. That's not okay either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also what I'm hearing is this um, notion, this idea that objectivity, like objectivity is a privilege, right? So I just read, I read briefly read an article mm. earlier today about journalism and that objectivity is only really afforded to white people. So anything that that white dude says is objective, right? And is not at all political. It's completely objective. <laughs> neutral yeah. right but anything that you say or your colleagues say is politicized is inflammatory is divisive you know you're pushing an agenda shauna right oh yeah um, oh yeah oh yeah yeah i think that that is really problematic and i have a, a similar example a, a friend of mine was telling me about her employer and they they have the diversity committee right they established the organizational diversity committee the organizational diversity committee that is made up entirely of white people. So it feels like um, a, a self-congratulatory pat on the back. This is um, simply feel good. Is there going to be any systemic change that happens in this organization that actually only has two folks of color employed? Are they going to wow. grapple with the fact that they only have two people of color, both of whom declined to be on the committee? <laughs> Right. Like, oh, gosh, is there mm. going to be a conversation that happens in this diversity committee about that, about why that would be right? Um, and it gets run by uh, the CEO or the, one of the high up guys who is um, mm -hmm. a white male. Um, 
you know, so it's kind of same patterns of what you experienced. Um, And so there, there's some resistance, right? There's Mm -hmm. some um, unwillingness to engage in those hard conversations, I think, um, which circles right back to the, this feeling of like, we just have to do something, even if it's not effective, because I just need to feel good about it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but that gets into, you know, is it self-serving? Is it mm. in self-interest? Because, you know, are you doing it because you genuinely care about other groups or are you doing it because you need to feel good about doing the right thing, being on the right side of history, any of that? Yes, self-interest. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, right? Because I do think that allyship or being a co-conspirator or however you want to term it, there's certainly some different terms for it. Um, Mm -hmm. You need to really ask yourself as a white person or as a man, if you're trying to be an ally and supportive of women and trans people, or as a straight person, if you're trying to be supportive of the LGBT community, right? Like what, what is it that's motivating you to engage, right? Are you Mm. put, are you actually experiencing discomfort because we know that that's where the growth happens or is it your self-interest in performing to be that good blank person. Right. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I yeah. do think, you know, and that's one of the things like when my friend was talking to me about how she could effectively engage in this diversity committee that, you know, she feels like won't go anywhere. I said, well, you have to identify the self-interest of the CEO, right? Like what's his self-interest like, and that's where you need to target your um, approach to try and make this diversity committee more than just a fluffy committee a feel good committee, right? Like, cause everyone's motivated by self motivated by self-interest in some way. And I don't say that folks to say that, you know, like trying to engage in this work in a meaningful way means that you're a crappy person. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right. But I think that you do need to understand like, how am I motive? What is my motivation? Um, and if it really is just because I want people to like me or I want to be perceived as anti-racist, then you might want to sit down and have a long, hard conversation with yourself because that doesn't help communities who are experiencing marginalization. It helps you, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, and you know, I think that's where, you know, I, uh, let me just circle back to the phased piece of things and even folding back in the whole conversation about Chadwick Boseman and how much we're discovering that he was doing that people didn't really know about. Uh, We can even go all the way back to January with Kobe Bryant and all the things that he was doing and that people didn't really know about. It's, you know, do we want to leave that type of legacy where we've done things that were on the right side of history that we didn't need somebody to have a parade Mm -hmm. down the middle of the street to commemorate the fact that we did it if no one ever finds out we ever do it? Is that okay? And, you know, I think that's kind of the power of allyship is you're right. Who are we doing this for? Who are we performing for? And can we continue to build spaces where we're going to do it because it's the right thing? Because we care about other people that we really don't care who's on what committee, what have you. We want to be on the right side of history because it's the right thing to do. For some of us, it's part of our faith and our value sets. So Mm -hmm. it's folded into who we are and what we believe in. Um, And so, you know, given that, you know, you're right, let's examine our motivation. I think anybody that wants to demonstrate ally characteristics towards any group, any subjugated group needs to think about that. You know, is Mm -hmm. this truly like, you know, is, is this for you? Is this for them? Is it for both? Um, Because it is a performance and, you know, are you doing it for the applause? I mean, we, we perform in theaters because we're waiting on the applause at the end. 
um, and the reactions at least of others. It may not even be applause. It might just be a reaction. Um, and so given that, you know, I'm thinking about Hamilton now, how you could hear all the reactions that were going on. But, you know, I do think sometimes people perform waiting to be praised, have a pat on the back or congratulations, you did the right thing or well mm -hmm. done. You know, what if you did it and no one ever knew ever? what if you did it? No one mm -hmm. ever knew. And are you okay with that? And if so, I think you're in a great position to be an ally. Yeah, your theater um, connection, I think, is an important one, right? Because when you are an, are an actor in a theater performance, like you, you're wearing an outfit, right? You're, you're taking on a, the role of a, a character, but you get to take that off at the end of that performance. And I do see that happening a lot, um, particularly right now, with this groundswell of support for Black Lives Matter and um, for some meaningful change, um, is it's dying down a little bit, right? And I'm thinking about um, folks in privileged positions are taking off their outfits, right? They did what they needed to do in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And now, now they're just kind of getting back to quote unquote normal. Um, that doesn't lead to sustained social change. Mm -mm. Yeah, after you've, you know, bundled up the kids, you've made the big posters with the, the uh, pithy sayings on it, and you go march downtown in DC, and then you get to go home and not think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And how comfortable and convenient is that? Mm -hmm. um, to, to me, and I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not taking away anything from what it looks like to peacefully protest in a time where it could be dangerous. So, you know, that legacy of John Lewis, the, the legacy of, of all the marches on Washington over time. And, you know, we could go on and on about the history of protests in this country. Um, you and I both work in higher ed environments, so we know how students pop off quickly based on the context. You know, what does it mean to not just do that part? Because that is one form of allyship, but it's not all of it. So what does it look like when, um, I was talking to someone earlier about uh, micro allyship. It's when you're doing those little teeny small things that mm. other people may not even notice, but it's still kind of uh, uh, speaking for others. So for example, you know, if I see that the executive assistant is being asked to write that 25 page report, no, that's not okay. You're putting that on this individual that Number one, already is up to their eyeballs and work. Number two, you're not paying them what you should be paying someone else to write that report. So why are you just slapping that on their desk as if, oh, they'll do it and not honoring the power dynamic of them feeling as if they cannot say no? What does that mean for the conversation? So if you intercept that or interrupt mm -hmm. that, I think that's a, a micro ally behavior of saying, no, that's not okay. And you can't put that extra work on someone that's already being underpaid. It's not okay. Mm -hmm. I do think, yeah, a piece of the allyship um, when, when you're there, when you feel like you're able to do that, right, is um, putting your neck on the line as a privileged person, right? So um, taking, yeah, yeah. Yeah, taking risk that, that could harm you, right? Could harm you professionally. It could lead to some backlash. But that, that's what it means because folks who experience marginalization, folks of color, women, LGBT folks, you know, they're having to deal with that mm. every single day. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. you stepping up in one moment um, to make a point, right, to ask a hard question or to point something out, sure, that's going to feel uncomfortable um, and mm -hmm. maybe you get pushback. Um, maybe it harms your professional progression but that's i think that's what's needed um mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, be, and being educated enough to negotiate that effectively. And I think that's where we come back to that phased approach, right? Like, yeah. You know, storming yeah. into your boss's office with very little education about this and calling them a racist <laughs> might not be the best approach, right? So oh, if yeah. you yeah, if you build up some education and some knowledge and you have conversations and you and you can kind of point out some of this insidious stuff that's happening under the surface, mm-hmm. there are ways then that you can turn that faucet off. Um, yeah. without yeah. having to storm into your boss's office and call them a racist. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you know, that, that's the thing too, you know, how do you, I, I used to say, how do you interrupt behavior? Like how do you interrupt a microaggression? And now I'm just at full stop. How do you stop aggression period? I don't even want to use microaggression anymore. One of my very good friends, who's a um, historian, an African-American historian, she says it all the time that I'm no longer interested in talking about microaggressions because this is flat out aggression, large, small, medium. It is aggression. How are we going to stop it as it's happening? And what does that feel like? Because someone has to take a brunt of that. Some of us have been taking the brunt of it for our entire lives. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. who's going to step in the way so that they can stop that train? You know, that, that I think is important. Um, you know, when is it the right time? When is it, wh- what is the appropriate handle on it. Um, you know, if it, it kind of goes back to that old saying, I know I'm going to screw it up, but that old saying around, you know, if you only have one tool, then it's the answer to every challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if the only tool you have is busting in someone's office and telling them a racist, then you're not going to get very far. So, right. you know, what are the other tools that you have in place as far as, you know, are you reframing conversations where someone may see an individual because of their race, their gender, et cetera, Um, in a deficit model, well, how do you flip that into an excellence model? So what does it mean when we say, oh, well, that person, I I hear it all the time, that student, for example, that is the oldest of 10 kids, oh, well, they may be too swamped to, you know, pursue school or to finish, et cetera. And I end up, or someone else ends up having to reframe by saying, oh, yeah, they're the oldest of 10 kids, but oh, they are very good with their time management. They're very good with conflict mediation. (laughs) You know, all these other things that an older sibling would need to do stereotypically. Um, But I would guess I'm an only child. Um, But these are things that, you know, we can consider how do we continue to reframe the conversation? Um, I remember being on a search committee many years ago at my previous institution. And this person um, was going to be in our top three candidates for a position. And someone looked at her resume and said, I don't understand why this person would want to step down to this position. They're going from like a dean of students to an assistant director position of some sort. So it looked as if it was a step down from where they were. And I said, well, you know, it's not for us to decide what their story is. They applied for a reason. So let's invite them in. There's no harm in having a conversation. We'll find out because it will probably come forward in in the interview. Lo and behold, this person is stepping back because they did not want to have a dean of students position as they were pursuing a PhD in higher education. They wanted a position that had fewer hours, didn't have round-the-clock call, um, and they wanted something to, you know, take a step back in order to mm-hmm. take several steps forward. Well, we would this person ended up being hired, and now they've worked at that particular university for over 10 years. Well, what if we had not reframed? And that happens, I believe, constantly with Black people and constantly um, with people of color. I, th- I think the challenge is white folks don't reframe enough either. And I don't even know if they have the language to reframe mm-hmm. certain things, you know. Um, and, you know, how do we invite folks to think about how to do that better? 
Well, and in triathlon and in sport, right? Like, so um, assumptions that are being made, and we talked about the cycling example of women in a bike shop, right? Who are you mm-hmm. assuming as a volunteer at a race? Who are you assuming is in charge of the race? Yes. Right? Yes. Who are you assuming is um, a competitive triathlete, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of that's mm-hmm. swirling around in our heads. And um, one thing that we can do as triathletes is if there is an assumption made, we can reframe, right? We can actually shift the conversation and gently challenge some of those Mm -hmm. assumptions that are being made. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's something we did. Um, I just mentioned earlier that my, my tri coach is here, but a bunch of my uh, tri team is, is here and probably commenting on the chat. And, you know, that's something that we had to reframe too, when we've gone to races. And when I know that 40 plus members of my tri team are there, Yet when I see the marketing for their particular race on that Monday and I don't see one brown face in anything that they put out there, then I have questions. And so then I have to reframe and say, hey, I think you guys have done a phenomenal job over the years with marketing. Can we make sure that we have more representation of especially black people, but black women, our women pros in general, you know, I could go on and on of with a list of people that were excluded from marketing, but how do we reframe that? Because, you know, most organizations I would say are trying, they're good, but they're trying to get to great. And so this is where, you know, it's easy to shut people down from hearing what you have to say when you come in offensive. It goes back to your point about, you know, busting up in someone's office and saying, you're a racist. Now let's talk about race. Nah, they don't want to talk to you about race. You just called them a racist. And so, you know, I think that's what happens quite often in triathlon. We have to be very careful with how we approach people. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we, how do we even start the conversation, I guess, is a better way to frame that. Yeah. Um, So I think we're going to transition to some Q&A. We have a couple of questions. I did just want to throw this in here because I was listening to um, an NPR interview. I think it was NPR. Um, And there's a writer for the Atlantic called Ed Young. And he's just recently written a piece about the pandemic. And um, he talked about the need for us to have radical introspection. And I just Mm. loved that term, radical introspection. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about it in the context of the pandemic. And I'm just looking at my notes here. And Mm -hmm. he's basically saying that so many of us want to go back to normal, right? We want to race. We want to go back to our jobs. We want our kids to go back to school. We just want this to end and we want to have some form of normality. Yeah. Yeah. But what he's arguing is that, well, you know what? Normal wasn't actually that great for a lot of people, right? That's Um, it. Yes. And the way to tackle that, all of the structural and systemic inequities that have been illuminated through the pandemic, and I think that we can think about that in the context of sport also, is it requires Mm. radical introspection. And he kind of um, compared it to looking at the sun. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's hard, right? Oh you, yeah. You, you can't do it like for five minutes, but yeah, <laughs> but you have to do it. Um, and so that reframing stuff that you talked about, I think that is connected to this radical introspection. Like mm-hmm. people of privilege have to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and it's hard. It's hard to look in that mirror. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's hard to make mistakes. And I, I always call it this clumsy allyship where you know, if you're, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not doing it at all. You know, you're going to make yes. the mistakes, you know, yes. you're, you're going to make the mistakes. So it's a matter, it's always that course correction when, mm-hmm. when, and as you're making those mistakes, it, you, you have to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to answer some questions. If you have a question, please go ahead and drop it in the uh, Q and a, um, 
as Lindsay mentioned, it's down at the bottom. You can um, open that box and write your questions in. If we don't get to your question, Shona and I are going to collect it all up and all of the comments in the chat. And we're going to use that for our podcast moving forward. We're going to try and answer those questions or perhaps focus on subjects. So Shona, you want to jump in and maybe answer one of the questions? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me let me just say here that um, we have several questions coming up. Um, Heather McTeer Tony, who is in my tri club. How you doing, Heather? Um, she asked a question. She says, I've been to races where I truly believe the race director is an ally, but the athletes that attend and participate in the race are racist. How do we work with the RD? I think they're concerned about pushing away do dollars versus being very public allies. I love that question because what I always think, this, this reminds me, Heather, of conversations I've had with universities that I've worked at that have alumni and donors and people where strings are very much attached for certain reasons and that's how universities function. Same way with races, they have to function based off of money. I think what usually happens though is that when the marketing is right, when the inclusivity is right and it's actually happening in actionable ways, you actually, you will lose folks. Let me put it that way, you will lose folks, period. But I think you will attract many more than you lose. Um, so, you know, for example, I'm thinking about um, Delmo Sports, my favorite uh, race uh, director, uh, Steve Del Monte, who, you know, was told flat out that you're going to have a hard time recruiting more women into triathlon and especially first timers. And, you know, he ended up losing some because they're like, hey, we want co-ed races. We want et cetera, et cetera. We, wh where are the men? Where are the men's places in this? And I think he sold out in the first 48 hours for his first all women's pool triathlon that was for beginners. Um, and so, you know, that's one example based on gender, but based on race, I think the same thing will happen that you'll have folks that may either leave the sport or start to only do certain races, mm -hmm. especially in certain areas of the country. And those that are excited about inclusion will flock towards those races. And so, yeah, you'll lose folks, but I think you'll, you'll probably triple how many you attract. So Lisa, what do you think about that? I agree. And I think it comes back to what we talked about with um, white people, especially having to put their neck out, right? Like, mm, what does it mean yes. to be um, unapologetically unfazed yeah. unfazed right? there you go that, that this is important to my business this is important to my community and this is what i stand for and if i mm. lose people then i'm losing the people i don't want to be a part of my community right that's it. um and i think that there like i recognize that there is potentially a perhaps temporary financial hit in doing that but we never talk about as business owners what you will reap by doing that, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. we always talk about what you will lose. Well, if you're too outspoken about this, that, and the other, then right. you're going to scare off men. You're going to scare off white people. You're going to scare off this group or that group, right? Versus, well, if you're outspoken about this, you're going to include and bring in groups and people who have never felt that they had a place in this mm -hmm. community. And I think mm -hmm. that half of the conversation about who you will bring in, like we don't, we don't push that enough. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I'm thinking about all the tri clubs that are all interested in diversity, et cetera. When they find out that your race or your event um, is open and excited about 
um, athletes of color, athletes of various backgrounds, trans athletes, et cetera, then they, they will flock to you. So yeah, we do talk about the loss before we talk about the gain in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at, um, Oh, speaking of which, and I want to fold this back in because um, we talked about Chadwick earlier, but that's the exact same thing that people said were, was going to happen with Black Panther. You know, Disney took a risk by saying, oh, well, we want to create this African superhero around XYZ. And, oh, well, you know, it's only going to be interesting to certain people. It was very universal. It was one of their, what, I, I think they uh, created an entirely new model uh, when it came to attracting folks to Marvel comics. And so some people, their point of entry into the Marvel world came through Black Panther as it was made. And so, you know, they became more attractive to everyone, which they saw on the bottom line. So now businesses are studying how Disney introduced Black Panther into the business model. So, you know, for those naysayers, we know they're going to be there, but models have proven otherwise. Well, and that's white supremacy at its best, right? Like films with white lead actors are going to be popular for everyone, but films mm-hmm. with black or other folks of color as lead actors are only going to be niche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, right. Yeah. Right. That's no one's going to be interested in them. Right. So the othering that happens there. Mm-hmm. Um, Alicia asked the question, my employer had listening sessions. The facilitator talked about the 30% model in that 30% of people on the progressive end drag everyone into making change. Do you believe that to be the case? Ooh, 30%. That's a a hard and fast number, Lisa. I don't know if, I don't know if we should adhere to a hard, fast number. (laughs) I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I've actually not heard of this 30% model. I think that's very, um, Alicia works for a, if it's the Alicia, I think it is, works for a science-based organization. Okay. So mm-hmm. my, my sense is that there is this desire for us white people, especially to create mm-hmm. categories and measures and bars. And if we do this thing at this percentage and at this rate, then something will change. I mean, I do think there is credence to the tipping point to the concept of the tipping point right mm, um yeah, yeah. yeah. whether okay. or not you could say i mean i'd have to see the research but it seems a little stretchy to say that across all professionals i mean all professions sorry mm-hmm. all organizations of all sizes that if you have 30 percent of people who profess to be progressive or articulate that position then the whole company falls mm-hmm. like in that direction right right yeah, I I wouldn't, I don't know if I would go with a 30% per se, but what I will say is that, and I've, I've shared this before in my social media, is that I think there are probably at least three different categories of folks. I wouldn't break it down into an exact percentage per se, mm-hmm. but I think you have the extreme, live out loud, overly performative allies, people that are just gung-ho. They may not even have the full language to describe it, but they almost overstep their boundaries in allyship. So you got that category. You have the other folks that completely avoid it. (laughs) You know, they don't want to talk about it. They have no interest in having conversations. And then you have a bunch of confused people in the middle that are like, I need to do something, but I'm not quite sure what should be happening. And so, you know, when you have a mixture of all that, I think what unfortunately can happen, and I've seen it happen before, where literally overly enthusiastic white folks that 
try to drag the organization in a certain direction. And I always wonder whether it's performative or not, or whether it literally is necessary energy to get the entire organization moving in the right direction. So I don't have a really good answer to that question, but I do think there are at least those three categories and Mm -hmm. people need to go, going back to your reflection piece, you know, have this radical reflection piece of figuring out what category you fall in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sorry, Alicia, we couldn't give you a very exact answer to that question, but I think it's a good one for us to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, We have another Mm -hmm. question uh, from Heather about how um, tri-clubs where predominantly white tri-clubs who have a handful of folks of color um, Mm -hmm. and those folks of color being leaned on by the white people to teach the white people or to be the ones that call out problematic racial assumptions or shift Mm. the system. So the burden falling on folks of color. And I definitely think that 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 happens inside and outside of triathlon. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, um, Shauna. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, I do think it does happen. Um, Here's the thing though, when it comes to We're, we're talking about tokenism, Lisa. That's, that's where we're going. We're going into yes. our, our lesson on tokenism, right? <laughs> um, so the, the folks that are, you know, one or two that are there that unfortunately get the, the brunt of the questions and the onus to educate everyone else is on these one or two people. So, yeah, I, I think we have to, we do have to remind folks that we want to race and we don't want to be responsible for educating folks. And, and I think what happens is that when we choose not to engage in that way, then the onus still falls on us. Well, I'm a white person that doesn't know XYZ concept because whoever did not want to answer my question or someone was mean to me or someone didn't centralize the fact that I'm ignorant to this topic. And so I, I do think you know, yes, we do need to speak up to a point, but I also think that we need to have a level of a boundary. I don't even say a level, a boundary. You know, when do we get to the place where we draw the line? Now, Lisa, for you and I, I think it's a little bit different because this is what we do for a living. Like mm-hmm. we literally study and do this for a living. So when someone asks Shauna, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? Lisa, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? Usually we engage because this is what we do. But for folks that don't do this professionally, they have to create a boundary and again, reframe, reframing what's not a person of color's responsibility and what is that white person's responsibility in the group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't have to fall on the one or two people of color to answer those questions. They're, they're not only are they trying to race, but they're also trying to race within a tri club with a bunch of people that don't look like them and may not have the same background. So they're trying to manage all that at the same time. And now you're asking them to be the vice president of education in the tri club. No, that, that's not reasonable. It's just not. Yeah. And I, I think that responsibility is absolutely on the shoulders of white triathletes to recognize the emotional labor, um, that mm. folks of color in their tri club, if they're in a minority, are under, and then s- situate that in our current cultural climate, right? So, um, yeah, you yeah. know, we're not we're not talking about this stuff absent um, what's happening around us, right? So mm. you've got mm-hmm. so much um, pain. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the pain is, I'm not saying the pain is new. The pain is always there, but it's certainly very pronounced right now. And what does it mm-hmm. mean for you as a white person to then ask that um, 
one Latinx person or one mm-hmm. black person in your organization. Can you teach me about this, please? You know, there's a thing called Google, <laughs> right? Um, you know, there, there are libraries, there are exactly. bookstores, right? This is mm-hmm. stuff that you can do on your own. Um, mm-hmm. And you can figure this stuff out and you can um, mm-hmm. learn, you can learn. And I yeah. think that that's your responsibility. Um, well, well, you know, sometimes I even, <laughs> as, as a boundary, once again, I even kind of screen my responses to folks based on what they come to the table with. You know, so it's, it's one thing if someone comes to me and, you know, they maybe don't know a concept or they want clarification on something, but it's another thing when I can really tell that someone has been working hard. You know, I read this book on X, Y, and Z, or I read this article and I'm trying to understand, or um, can you help me with X, Y, and Z? Because they've already started doing their own research and homework. It's another thing when you're coming in cold and it's like, can you give me a full reading list of everything that I need to look at? I'm like, wait a minute, that's a lot of work. And, you know, they pay colleges and universities to do that type of work. They don't pay me to do that necessarily Mm -hmm. um, just as the, the average white person that's on a tribe team. So, you know, given that to me, it's concerning again, how much responsibility we put on people that should not necessarily be responsible for the education of Mm -hmm. other folks. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So we have, we have one more question in the Q and a, I think there's some questions being asked in the chat. So we'll get to those. Um, in future podcasts, but let's just wrap mm-hmm. up because I'm, I'm conscious that we're at an hour and 10 minutes now. Um, yeah. So this last question from Erica is about how they can create a boundary of inclusivity when a white triathlete friend prefaces the question that it's for educational pers- purposes, right? That they're asking you for educational purposes and then follow up their question with, I feel like as a white woman, I'm always ignored. So mm-hmm. some tips on creating some boundaries in a, in a scenario such as that. Mm, let's see. So how to create a boundary. Oh, let's see. So I'm, I'm assuming Erica is a woman of color or a person of color um, and talking about their white triathlete friends. Yeah. I, I think for this, this, this is where it gets interesting because, you know, I, I feel like sometimes that's the, let me front load the guilt you know, let me front load the, I'm ashamed for even needing to know this information, but I need to know. And once again, I'm putting the onus upon you to educate me on this. Um, and if they're saying they're being ignored, you know, Lisa, this goes back to your point. A library doesn't ignore you. Google does not ignore you. A bookstore does not ignore you. Again, it's, I, I'm not understanding why some people continue to deflect the responsibility or the onus of learning onto anyone else other than themselves, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. it, it's up to me to pick, to pick up an entire, you know, shelf of books to get started on what I need to know. It's up to me to Google. It's up to me to do all these different things. And so, you know, to me that, that is a big conundrum of, you know, reminding people that whose responsibility is it for you to be an educated person around these particular topics? It's mm-hmm. not everybody else's. It's mm-hmm. no one else's, in fact. It's very much yours. And so, you know, how do we get some ownership around what we know and what we don't know and how to acquire it? I, I think we need to really, you know, do that introspective piece mm-hmm. of who's responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And I would encourage Erica to draw the line, you know, to draw the line quite brightly. Um, I say that, though, as a white person, knowing that there are different consequences, particularly for women of color who, um, 
refuse to engage, right, in terms of those stereotypes around being angry or being dismissive. So mm-hmm. this is not um, without complication. But so then my, my message would be to the white women or white mm-hmm. people who are um, perhaps asking that question that um, it's really important for you to understand that if a person of color tells you they don't want to answer that question or they don't want to engage or go use Google or some, whatever they say, right? Because they're drawing a boundary <laughs> for their own self-care that you right. don't take offense by that, right? Because the world doesn't revolve around you, right? Like it's either back to Shauna's point, it's your responsibility to do that learning. It's not the responsibility of communities of color to educate you. And so, um, you know, pick yourself up, deal with your bruised ego if you have one, because I think that's also a product of whiteness and just oh. move on. Right. And mm-hmm. don't, don't be holding stupid grudges because someone said, you know what, I'm not going to be your educator because mm-hmm. I've got too, I've got too much to deal with and that's not my job. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. That's not my job. I'm here to race. I don't want to ride and think about the question you just asked me that was deep and I don't want to do that. I don't right. want to do that right now. Right. Don't want to. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So do you think we should wrap it up here, Shauna? Yeah, I think we should, even though all these questions are looking really good. I hope we're saving all these for, for the next round. Um, some of them actually do feed into some topics we have coming up in the future. So we, we definitely don't want to lose these. But yeah, I think we're at the end of the road for tonight. And let me just um, shout out everyone that's uh, actually logged on to be with Lisa and I. Again, these are conversations we literally would have anyway. (laughs) So um, you all have been kind of like the voyeurs into this entire conversation. So I'm sure uh, Lisa appreciates how all of you have just jumped on board with this. um, What is this? This brainchild of ours? Yeah. You know, this thing that we had been thinking about doing anyway. So we're so appreciative of everyone that logged on tonight. So any Mm -hmm. final thoughts, Lisa? I would just say that this work is hard. It's messy. It's nuanced. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, if you're, if you're committed to it, then you got to stay in it. um, Even when it doesn't feel good. Um, And that's especially true for white people um, Mm -hmm. or for men when it comes to sexism, right. Or for straight folks, when it comes to uh, working around homophobia, like you have to, right. Because in some cases this is life or death. And I don't say that lightly. Um, this is really important. Um, the, you know, the future of our country in some, in some respects is at stake and the future of our sport, right? Everyone on here loves triathlon or endurance sports if they're not triathletes, right? That's why they're here. Um, so I feel like you got to be in it to win it. (laughs) Um, and you have to challenge yourself and you have to get yourself on that learning edge as uncomfortable as that sounds. But as Shauna has said, don't throw yourself in at the deep end, right? phase your learning, um, but be unfazed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we encourage you to please follow us. This is again, our brainchild. It's our baby. Please don't talk about our baby. Our baby is not ugly. Our baby is fantastic. Let's just say that. (laughs) Um, But this is our brainchild and we hope that all of you will continue to log in, listen up, listen to the podcast. We have many more topics to come and we're just so excited that all of you wanted to log in and just hear our musings out loud. So um, mm-hmm. we, Lisa and I were, um, we were kind of like, it's kind of like the beginning of a race, right? Lisa, it's yeah. like eh, yeah. a little nervous, right? Um, huh. But so glad that you came out to support us. So we're so appreciative and continue to be unfazed, everybody. Yeah, watch for this podcast. It'll drop on Tuesdays at your Ooh. favorite podcast vendor. I don't even know how you're supposed to say that. You're so good at that. You're you're better than me. You're so good at that. (laughs) 
All right. Thank you, everyone. Night, everybody. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>